When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. In fact, a real phenomenon in China that I encountered when living there. The fact that, you know, when someone dies and you want to ensure good turnout for their funeral, one way to do so is by hiring strippers. That's the best thing I ever heard. I was reading it and I thought, is this happening? She's doing this. And the fact that that's also true. I mean, mm. isn't that the saying, the truth is stranger than fiction? It's, it's wonderful. More true for China than anywhere else I've known. Everyone in my life knows that books light me up. And on this show, I have the amazing opportunity to sit down with great authors and get inside their heads. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. On this episode of Lit Up, I speak to Tapin Chen. We talk about being one in 1.3 billion people, robots that cut noodles for you, hotline girls, and funeral strippers. We also talk about her new collection of short stories, Land of Big Numbers. Welcome to the podcast, Tipping Chen. Thank you for joining us from Philadelphia. Thank you so much for having me. We're here today to talk about your remarkable debut story collection called The Land of Big Numbers that breathes life into the men and women of contemporary China and its diaspora and all the ways in which their lives are shaped by varying degrees by state control. Before we get stuck into the book, I want to mention that you're a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and have been there since 2012. And during this time, you were a correspondent for the paper in both Beijing and Hong Kong. And that experience really influences these remarkable stories. To start off, how would you describe this collection of stories and what are the recurring themes that underpin them? The story is a mix of realism and magical realism, and it traces the journeys of all generations and different kinds of people Many of the sort that I encountered in China, in this book, readers will meet everyone from an elderly farmer who's trying to build his own airplane 
to men and women in love, to a government bureaucrat who's being stalked by her ex-boyfriend, a world of different characters who are grappling with questions of what it means to be one person in a society of 1.3 billion people, where so often your choices can feel constrained and how these characters meet and make and find meaning and, and manage to assert themselves and build identities in, the, in often really challenging circumstances. Well, the title of the book is so compelling, The Land of Big Numbers. And I'm wondering how these themes that you've talked about connect to this title. The title in many ways is intended to be a little bit playful, poking some fun at the way that so often China is seen from a distance as a place of abstractions, GDP, statistics, as a monolith, really. And the book is really intending to give readers just a more intimate portrait of what it is like to live in modern day China and to grapple with some of these questions. You're first generation Chinese American and born and raised in California. When you went back to China for the first time, what struck you most about that first vision of this place that had been such a part of your ancestry and history? What struck me most was how unrecognizable it felt. My father had really instilled in us this, this deep sense of Chinese culture and traditions, and really also surrounded by some of the artifacts of that kind of heritage that his family had come to the country with, anything from paintings to old Chinese porcelain, that sort of thing. And to arrive in bleak winter in Beijing, living out in the burbs where it was just miles of these gray Soviet blocks, just incredibly grim. And it just seemed like such a place that, I mean, of course, we're talking you know, years after the Cultural Revolution, the, the country had been changed irreversibly and unimaginably since the time my grandparents had lived there. So for me, it was really a feeling of dislocation. And, and it was hard. It was really, I felt a lot of sadness that first trip. I can imagine even on that plane ride, also with the knowledge of almost a fantasy coming true. Like I'm sure as a child, you have these images, particularly if you're surrounded by the beauty that was created there and then to have this kind of whiplash must have been really difficult. Whiplash is a really good way of putting it. Thinking about your parents, I'm wondering, did you grow up in a household where the Chinese government and their control over the people was something you talked about at home or was it very much like it was something that the family had escaped from? On my father's side, certainly, my dad would talk at length about the fact that the communists were the ones who had been the victors, ultimately, in the struggle. His identity growing up as the child of a member of the Kuomintang was rooted very deeply in him. As, as a child, he grew up saying at home, when he wanted to please his father, reclaim the mainland, up until really you know, the 60s and 70s, that fantasy was very much alive, this idea that someday the KMT would come back and win and take mainland China again. And he had a Taiwanese citizenship and still does. He never took American citizenship for what are essentially emotional reasons, just this attachment to this idea of nationhood and wanting someday to 
go back perhaps. And for me, though, when I expressed the desire to go back, he was very clear in saying, absolutely not. I was a very opinionated teenager and he was like, you'll go and you'll say something stupid, shoot your mouth off and get thrown into prison. And he had a very, very dark view of the government there. He had sort of that mix of yeah, just deep, deep distrust, even to the point that when I went to college and befriended Chinese students, he was fearful at times. Just there was always that sense of fear regarding the Communist Party and its regime. Well, in these stories, in every one of them, there is this sense of foreboding and it, the book vibrates with it. It's so extraordinary. And I felt that the state was present always as I was reading it as well as if I was, you know, it was a crime to read your fiction also because someone might be watching me. It, it was quite incredible. But I want to talk about the first short story in the collection called Lulu that appeared in The New Yorker. You spoke very much just now about your father's fears of you, you know, saying something outlandish while you were there and the passion of a young person when you see corruption around you. And Lulu is very much about that. Could you tell us about the character Lulu and particularly about also why you wanted to write about a set of twins who were spared the reach of the government's family planning policies? I wanted to write the story through the lens of somebody who was watching their loved one choose ultimately this virtuous and incredibly brave, but also dangerous path. And just to try and capture what that experience of mixed horror and admiration and anger and frustration would be like. And, and what more intimate relationship than a twin? So that was, that was the starting point for that story. From your time in China as a reporter and just witnessing and meeting people, young people around, does it still feel like there is an impact from the one-child policy? Absolutely, because the people that you meet are the products of the one-child policy. And despite the recent policy changes, that is the way that society is constructed around the one-child policy. And China is very much still living with the legacy of that. And you see that with everyone you meet. Oh, I'm just still baffled by the enormity of that. Yeah. It's it's the sort of thing that you almost take for granted. From a distance, of course, it's monstrous sounding. And yet in day-to-day -day life, it's just something, I mean, people only have no siblings, uh, you know, and ex except for certain circumstances, broadly speaking, people, people don't. And we were speaking about the role of the state in these stories. And I feel like in some ways, it's something that is so omnipresent and exerts such a heavy imprint on people's lives. And yet, day to day, it's something that it's also possible to have recede and not be something that you're thinking all the time about. And so much of, of Land of Big Numbers is very much about the ways that people are, you know, making lives in the cracks of the system and finding ways to build their own identities and pursue their ambitions, even, even in the face of some of this incredibly strong state diktats. It seems that the one-child policy also created these generations of, you know, lonely kids. I'm, I'm an only child, but 
fortunately my parents remarried so I ended up having kind of siblings at least on the weekends and I remember it being lonely and I think of an entire continent of only children and just how that must shape people's relationships in in every way. For a long time in China, I remember people referring, you know, often to the products of the one child policy as little emperors. You know, it's the experience of feeling like so much attention and so many resources are being lavished upon you and there's it can lead to a really stifling feeling, I think, at times, and a sense that so much rests upon your shoulders. It also can create, I think, in some cases, a distorted sense of the, the, the sort of the trope about only children, you know, thinking that their universe is what's primary. I think that's a lament that you hear among Chinese parents, too, you know, feeling like their children have that challenge as well. I want to ask you about potentially my favorite story in the book, and it's called Hotline Girl. I mean, probably one of the greatest titles for a story, but I'd love it if you could tell us about Hotline Girl and what she does as a job, and if that's connected to a real job in China that exists. Hotline Girl tells the story of a young woman who grew up wanting to become a singer and had all these dreams and ambitions, and ultimately moves to the big city to try and make them reality, and finds herself, after some setbacks, working as a government bureaucrat in a call center, a satisfaction office, which is devoted to taking calls and complaints from citizens about any number of issues. It could be something as mundane as you know, a problem with your health insurance to something more deep-seated, concerns about corruption, or what have you. And it's a story that was inspired by the fact that there are, in fact, these hotlines in China that exist, which are devoted to taking citizen complaints and charged with um, ensuring that they are addressed promptly. There's, in some cities, very strict regulations saying that if you get a, a complaint from a citizen, you have to you have to take action on it in such and such time frame. And this image of a call center in which you have government officials sitting there taking call after call from people from all walks of life with all kinds of complaints about society, small and large, just fascinated me. It was it was something that seeded this idea for the story, and I was never able to get inside of one. But I loved this this idea. There there are a lot of themes in that story, but one of which is just what does it mean to be satisfied in society, right? And that connects, of course, to this young woman's own personal journey, which she starts out having these these very specific personal ambitions about what she wanted to achieve as an artist and where she ends up is much more kind of wedded to the broader project of the state to keep society stable and people contented and not causing trouble. You see a bit of that friction and conflict in that story. And of course, ultimately, her ex-boyfriend comes and, and shakes up some of that sense of, of security and confidence that she'd assembled in the years that she's, that she's arrived in the city. I find it so interesting to think of citizens being able to call in and, you know, people on the other end coming up with a beautiful emoji stream that might cheer them up or being able to receive a care package from the government 
to kind of help calm their anxieties and the fact that these places really exist is just fascinating and speaks to does it feel like a band-aid that the government's doing like to look like they care mm. about their citizens so i should say those details in the story are very much fiction i don't know what the internal workings really are of these sorts of call centers but i i think the the function that they serve right and which you also point out to essentially make people feel better and, and to act as a pressure valve in many ways, I think is is very much the function of the system. When I was looking into these centers as part of a possible story I was researching, um, I was looking at it through the lens of all the different mechanisms that exist in China for the government to try and essentially take the public's pulse too. For citizens, there's a degree of feeling like, okay, you've been heard and perhaps get a measure of satisfaction out of that. And for the government, there is also the utility of being able to see at this more mass scale, what are people upset about? What's really agitating people? And that's a really good just way to keep their finger on the pulse of knowing what are the trouble spots, right? And what are the potential sources of perhaps bigger outbreaks of public discontent, which could be dangerous to the to the regime? Well, not every character in your book is feeling a sense of discontent, although I guess the one I'm going to bring out is in many ways, but not necessarily against the government. I'm talking about the farmer who is building his flying machine, and he's not trying to you know, escape the government's clutches in any way. He wants to join the Communist Party and has been trying to join for his whole life. I'm wondering if you also came into contact with people like this during your travels that just truly believe in the party and want to be a part of it even more so. That sense of pride that we see in that elderly farmer, even though he lives at so much removed from the material success and prosperity of the country, is something that is so real and so deeply embedded in the country. When we speak about the sort of sense of pride in the party's accomplishments, it's impossible to disentangle from the broader propaganda apparatus that exists to create that sort of feeling and is, is very potent and powerful. Many of your stories were inspired directly by Chinese newspaper headlines um, that you saw when you were living there. Um, how does one of those headlines connect back to this man and his machine? Flying Machine was a story that in many ways I had been reading in miniature in Chinese newspapers. It was so in, in the mornings in the bureau, I would scan local media to see what's going on. And I, I would see with some regularity references to these rural inventors and what they were working on could range from trying to build a life-size replica of a transformer to, in several cases, airplanes. And it was just the most I just remember reading those little dispatches and just being so arrested by that detail. I mean, uh, an elderly farmer living in the countryside who's never flown a plane is deciding to build an airplane. And these stories were often treated as sort of curiosities within local media and, and of course, you know, not really written about with much depth. But I and I, I never got to go myself to speak to such an inventor, but the, it just captured my imagination. I wanted, I just wanted to know what the story there possibly could be. And it was a chance also to write about and evoke some of the villages that I've spent time with over the year, spent time in over the years. And that also for me was 
just a joy to write, to get to write with such affection about a very specific part of China, one that, that can be hard to see. Well, in that same story, that inventor creates this wonderful robot that can chop noodles. And I just figured that this was real. Is there a robot that can chop noodles yes. like this? <laughs> so it's it's so funny, you know, when we started out this conversation, I was explaining the collection. I mean, much of the book has magical realism woven into the stories, but that detail which you mentioned and another which um, I'll mention shortly from the story are they're, they're just some of the ones that sound most incredible but in fact are actually drawn from real life robots whose sole job is to cut noodles that's a phenomenon that I did write about for the Wall Street Journal and I have seen many of these robots in my own life and eaten many of their noodles they are indeed <laughs> delicious and yeah it was one of those details that was just I found so delightful and fascinating about life in China at that time that I was living there it was absolutely this major fad for these robot, not only chefs, but also waiters, all sorts of culinary related um, uses for robots with these faces and outfits and costumes that they would wear, just this whole fascinating world. And the other detail from that story, Flying Machine, which also sounds incredibly surreal and fabulous, but is in fact true, is that a funeral strippers would make an appearance in that story, which is in fact, a real phenomenon in China that um, I encountered when living there. The fact that, you know, when someone dies and you want to ensure good turnout for their funeral, one way to do so is by hiring strippers. I just... That's the best thing <laughs> I ever heard. I was reading it and I thought, is this happening? She's doing this. And the fact that that's also true. I mean, mm -hmm. isn't that the saying, the truth is stranger than fiction? It's It's wonderful. More true for China than anywhere else I've known. And so who hires the strippers? The family or the the local communist party? The family, the family. Okay. And actually the way that I learned about the existence of these funeral strippers was through a very staid, sober, quite serious official bulletin. I, I think it was the ministry of, I can't remember which ministry had issued it, but they'd issued this very official edict saying no more funeral strippers. They were trying to crack down on the practice when I was living there because for all sorts of reasons, it was connected to, you know, probably the anti-corruption campaign and all sorts of other things. At the time that I was living in China, they were, they were trying to regulate things like funerals and weddings to a much greater degree. But yes, it was very funny to encounter something as outlandish as funeral strippers in the context of like this very straight-faced official document. <laughs> My gosh. And when you say that the government was trying to crack down on weddings and funerals, is that as a, it seems, were they trying to squash the joy from them? Or is it more trying to make them more moral along certain guidelines? More moral along certain guidelines. And so the crackdown was occurring in the context of the anti-corruption campaign and, and not wanting to have these incredibly lavish displays occur. I mean, often that were connected to officials who were having some of these really extraordinary headline-grabbing events in which, you know, you'd have these cars on display, Rolexes, just all sorts of like really conspicuous consumption that the government was worried was occasioning citizen backlash. And so they were trying to curb those sorts of really excessive forms of celebration or, or commemorations. That makes total sense to me if you're meant to be a communist country and all the <laughs> officials, you know, yeah, rolling around in Rolls Royces and things. What are the ways that people can show their anger and frustration towards the state, but that won't get them thrown in jail? 
Where exactly is that line? Mm. Well, so I feel like that's two questions. One is where can people express themselves mm. and vent their their anger? And one is where where is the line and mm. when do you cross it? The first, I would say, some of it we see in the stories. So for example, in Lulu, the way that the sister makes her own voice known is very much online. And that is a lot of where you see that kind of sentiment emerge. And of course, in recent years, the party's ability to clamp down on that sort of thing and really track and, and control that sort of discourse is just, it's it's extremely, it's an extremely well-developed system. I, I remember vividly being in the Journals Bureau and chatting with colleagues using essentially, you know, the version of WhatsApp using that sort of software on my desktop. So we're not even talking about posting to kind of like the Twitter-like equivalents that exist in China. This is just in a private one-on-one message. And even in that, you know, I might send a message to a colleague and if it mistakenly, you know, inadvertently, sometimes an innocuous phrase, I would send it to this, you know, to colleague and she would, she wouldn't respond. And finally I'd walk over and say, Hey, did you get my message? It wouldn't have come through because it contained certain banned phrases. So just to say the you know the degree and precision with which these sorts of messages that the, that the government deems dangerous or too sensitive, they can just control those and track those with an incredibly sophisticated kind of system. And in terms of what you can do and say without getting into trouble, that that space has been narrowing increasingly under she. And so I don't, I don't think there's any, anything that you could say concretely is this is something that is safe and this is not. And that's part too, of course, of any authoritarian regime's power too, I think, is to just have that sense of, well, where is the line and to create fear such that you don't know where that line exists. And so you're not even going to approach anywhere near it, right? Because you don't know what the consequences might be. And then as a reporter, I'm just imagining you in the office, you know, trying to do your work for a foreign paper that wants to know what's going on. How do you even get those words out? Or how did you write for the papers there and say what you needed to say? The Wall Street Journal is, of course, an American newspaper. And so in no way, shape or form was I concerned about the political um, nature of any of our stories. All our coverage was writing about top leadership and very sensitive topics from from the Chinese government's perspective. And our site was also banned in China. And there was a, a consciousness, of course, I mean, more so, much more so than for myself and my colleagues, we were very conscious of the risks for the Chinese nationals who worked for mm. the paper. And also, of course, for our sources, those, those would be the primary fears that we had, just knowing that people were often accepting great risk to speak to us. Did you ever feel that risk acutely yourself? I did not. As somebody with an American passport, it was clear that the repercussions that I might face would be, you know, I might be kicked out of the country, but it would be nothing compared to something that might face a Chinese national. Hmm. I'm going to go back to your character, Lulu, because she does get imprisoned. I hope that's not giving away too much of the story because of the things she writes on social media. And so at what point does the government pick up on those messages? Was was your phone, say, particularly being targeted because 
they know that you're a reporter so you're being blocked or is it just this blanket block Mm. on communications? Well, my understanding is going to be dated to when I left, so 2018. I mean, I can only really speak to up to that point. But, I mean, it it is a a human system and there's always, I mean, Chinese internet users are endlessly creative and inventive. Mm -hmm. And so something might start to get circulated and then, as we see in Lulu, um, suffer a swift crackdown from censors. But people would find all sorts of ways to circumvent that. And it could be things like, you know, even flipping an image, say that there's a censored or controversial image, you know, turning it and reposting it. That's something that might elude censors for a bit. Or using other, you know, more oblique ways of re- referencing a sensitive incident. Using puns, for example, to also talk about something without actually using the literal words that had been banned. Of course, all of these sorts of dodges ultimately you know, many of them will will be caught by censors, but there is an incredible array of just originality at work and that kind of inventiveness that you would see. Speaking of inventiveness, I got a tip from your editor, Naomi Gibbs, that I had to ask you about Chinese street fashion and just (laughs) how fabulous it is. For a while when I was living in China, there was a fad which was to wear these fake green plants on top of your head. So there was a, this very crowded, popular thoroughfare near my apartment in Beijing. And so sometimes if you walked towards that street, often it was so crowded full of people, you know, it was hard to make your way through, but you could see these green plants that people were wearing on top of their heads. And you could almost trick yourself into thinking like you were standing and looking out at a moving field. And it was one of those incredibly surreal details from life in China that were just, yeah, as as you said, stranger than fiction. That image you've just created is so beautiful and like, yeah, like a rolling greenscape, I don't know, of creativity. (laughs) It just sounds gorgeous. Magical realism was a part of that. Just there is that feeling of expressive playfulness too that comes across in living in China and this tremendous sense of creativity and spontaneity that really captivated me when I was living there. I mean, I we talked about those very mixed feelings I had on first arriving in the country, but I can tell you after living in the country for as many years as I did, I mean, I, I truly fell in love with the place. I mean, it really became my home. And that's so much of what I was hoping to try and evoke in this book for readers is that side of the country, which is hard to access, is hard to see, but is absolutely just a a vital part of what it means to live in modern China is is that sense of people with their incredible creativity and fire and ambition and passion, all these sorts of things that make China so lovable. I mean, the stories absolutely capture all those nuances, but I particularly loved the way into the young people of China. I think your stories do that so beautifully. You obviously had so many kind of sublime and beautiful experiences from your time there because I can I can feel you light up when you talk about it, but I'm wondering if there's one you can share in particular that gives us a sense of the vitality of the young people in China. One thing that I can say is and that I loved about China is just the insatiable curiosity that people feel about the world writ large, but about Americans too. I remember so often encountering questions like, you know, one that's coming to mind is speaking with 
a taxi driver on one trip. He understood that I was American, but of ethnic Chinese descent. And he asked me, if you stay in America long enough, will you start to look like them? Will I start to look like a Caucasian person? And it, that was one species of question that I might encounter, but it was also other sorts of questions like, well, how does the political system work? Where do you vote? How do you vote? All these sorts of really kind of nuts and bolts questions in China that I encountered, this incredible curiosity mingled with a sense of like pragmatism that I loved so much and appreciated so much, this this real hunger to try and understand a system that is very different um, from their own in a, a very different context. And so that's just what I, I hope readers can take away from Land of Big Numbers is to be exposed to some of the surprises and pleasure and beauty that does exist in the world in, in modern China that is hard to see, you know, away from the headlines. And also maybe just to get to feel their own sense of curiosity about another place in a country awakened and be answered. Well, my very last question is, what lights you up? Everything. I, there's too much to say. I will say from my time in travel and also just living here in the States, I really appreciate craft. And that can be attention to detail in somebody who's making a beautiful bowl of noodles or someone who is sculpting something, just, you know, a piece of pottery. I, the ability of humans to appreciate and fixate on on details and find beauty in detail and to honor that and to work to achieve a certain level of grace and beauty in those small moments is something that just fills me with so much joy and admiration whenever I encounter it. Well, that is the most beautiful answer. And thank you for coming on Lit Up to talk about your extraordinary book, The Land of Big Numbers. Thank you so much for having me. Tapin's book, Land of Big Numbers, is available now, and you can purchase it via the link on our website, lituppodcast.com. You can learn more about her work at tapingchen.com, and you can also read her writing in the Wall Street Journal. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. This week's episode was edited by Rebecca Seidel. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rudofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.